Now. I don't know who he is behind that mask of his, but I do know when we need him. And we need him now. For some reason, the cool bars in Hollywood have to be hard to find and have to have your sign. This is the Cocktail Nation. Hello. Anchorwood Humperdinck is the focus of this week's show, Words with Wellesley, as Gary Wells returns from Solride Blog for 2024. And in our stuff segment this week, bringing you the story of one of the most interesting con men that walked the earth. We'll take a look at Lounge Life magazine, a look at the World of Swank gig guide, a deep thought coming your way as well, as we kick off now with Honolulu Transport and Marvellous on the Cocktonation. Nation. 
Cocktonation Hypnotics and bang bang, it's Lounge Leader Coop Cooper with you, official website cocktonation.net to see what's going on in the Sydney penthouse and to get in touch with me. I love receiving your emails and of course I always write back to everybody who gets in contact with me. You can email thecocktonation at gmail.com. Cocktail Nation. Words with Wednesday. You're a librarian, Mr. Wordsworth. You're a dealer in books and two-cent fines and pamphlets and closed stacks and the musty insides of a language factory. Words, Mr. Wordsworth. We need to warn people. I have often thought that if I had changed my name earlier from Jerry Dorsey to Engelbert Humperdinck, I would doubtless have arrived much sooner on the showbiz scene, but I have no regrets. My life as a singer who has sold 130 million records, had four Grammy nominations, and earned a place in the Guinness Book of Records was, and still is, magic. Hey gang, I'm Gary Wells from Vintage Leisure at SoulRideBlog.com, and I'm here with another year of book recommendations for the Cocktail Nation. This time we're looking at Engelbert, What's in a Name? The Autobiography, by Engelbert Humperdinck and Katie Wright from 2004. Engelbert Humperdinck was born George Arnold Dorsey in 1936, one of ten children of a British army officer stationed in Madras, now Chennai, India. Early on, he discovered he could sing and do impressions. His impersonation of Jerry Lewis earned him the nickname Jerry, and it was as Jerry Dorsey that he began his singing career. The reader will learn of Hump's contraction of tuberculosis, which put his early career on hold. He was out of commission for over a year and was even at one point given last rites. In 1967, the breakout success of both Release Me and his appearance at the London Palladium finally put Hump over the top. What follows is a conversational story of an entertainer's life that has a certain charm while it is lacking in detail in any discernible research. Fun to learn about Hump's Vegas years and his residencies at the Riviera, where part owner Dean Martin took the Englishman under his wing. Later, Hump shares experiences like a kidnap attempt in Chicago, hanging with mobsters in Westchester County and the time in Toronto when he lost his voice and couldn't go on. Hump was coerced, though, by a shady character with a gun. Engelbert dishes on living in Jane Mansfield's old mansion, the Pink Palace, relaxing with Lana Turner and Tom Selleck in Hawaii, learning karate from Mike Stone, singing to integrated audiences in South Africa and getting arrested in Caracas. Also interesting to learn of Engelbert's move to Los Angeles in the early 1970s to avoid the tax situation in the UK, where he was expected to pay a steep 98% income tax. Perhaps the most intriguing part of What's in a Name is the fact that Humperdinck has chosen to come forward regarding his many extramarital affairs. He even at one point gives up a chapter to his wife, Patricia, in which she tells her side of the story as it relates to her husband's infidelities might be hard for some readers to comprehend that Patricia says she understands about her husband's affairs and just wished he had been honest about them. Patricia says that Hump did not read what she had written until the book was published, and she and Hump have never talked openly to each other about this part of their marriage. Later on, Hump talks briefly about falling out with his original manager, Gordon Mills, over what Engelbert perceived as mismanagement in the areas of finance, but also by favoring Gordon's other star client, Tom Jones, over Humperdinck. Now, here's the hard part for me. This book is not great. It is not well written, and it includes some errors that may make the reader doubt the veracity of other things. For example, Hump talks of meeting Presley at the Riviera in 1973, which is true enough, but he claims King had an aide with him named Fred West, Surely he's not misidentifying Red West as Fred. Seems he is, and so when you hear that Jimmy Page, his name is spelled wrong here, John Paul Jones and Elton John all played on the Release Me album, you are skeptical. Sounds like too much of an all-star before they were big lineup. I did look this one up and I can't confirm that Page played on the album, so perhaps the others did too, but I doubt it. Throw in Humperdinck's mention of Jimi Hendrix dying at age 38 as opposed to 27. You know, the 27 Club? Engelbert says his 1973 single, Love Is All, became number one in the UK charts, but that song stalled at 44. 
He also says he was the innovator of sideboards or sideburns, and Elvis Presley copied his look. Well, no. He says his fine After the Lovin' LP went double platinum, which it did, but he also says it earned him a Grammy. He fails to clarify that it was a Grammy nomination. Later he claims that two of his albums released in the 2000s rose to number one, but I don't see that. And come to think of it, consider the lead quote I used for this review. Humperdinck scored two Grammy nominations in his career, not four. And lastly, is Hump making it sound like Release Me was number one for 56 weeks, as opposed to being on the charts for 56 and number one for six? It's goofy passages like this, and Hump playing fast and loose with chart placings, that make the book frustrating. I felt like I was nitpicking, but why publish things that aren't accurate? Especially when the actual numbers and chart placings are pretty impressive as they are. This book may be the very best example of a case of the necessity of owning something for the sake of owning it. I simply don't think that it is okay not to own this book. If you are living this vintage life, if you are a lover of the popular singers of the 50s and 60s, then it is my opinion that you need to own Engelbert Humperdinck's memoir. File What's in a Name, among other biographies that are less professional, less detailed, and less accurate than more serious dissertations, but that are still worthy of a place on your shelves. This is just chit-chat, but it does provide a look-in at the life of a bona fide living legend. So to wrap up, I can highly recommend Engelbert, What's in a Name, by Engelbert Humperdinck and Katie Wright. You can find plenty of copies for sale at Abe Books. If you'd like to read the full review of this book, you can head over to my website. I'd like to thank Coop Cooper and Cocktail Nation. Once again, this is Gary Wells from SoulRideBlog.com, and I'm encouraging you to pick up a book. Words with Wellsay. Cocktail Nation.
the Sydney Penthouse. Via radio. Because the network's made up of many stations, stations like the one you're listening to now, the smartest supper clubs from New York to San Francisco invite you to dance to the music of their big-name bands night after night. This is the Cocktail Nation.
destination, Steve Yeager in Monte Carlo, one of my favourite places in the world. Got to get back there sometime. Last time I was there was in 2019, just before uh, COVID hit. And we also played Kenny Sasaki with Ripples and some new music from Michael Weathermax and Blue Rondo à la deux. Lounge Life magazine, your free retro magazine, if you'd like to check out some of the, uh, the great retro stories we put up there. All you need to do is head to the website, cocktonation.net. We've got some links there. It's a free flipboard magazine. Great little app. Reads like a magazine, feels like a magazine. Got the first images of the 2025 movie of the Fantastic Four, which seems to be set in 1963. Bewitched is getting a reboot for TV. Don't know whether that's going to be any good. And a reflection on Audrey Hepburn's beauty tips, plus superstar ventriloquist Edgar Bergen, who left his daughter Candace nothing when he died. His uh, puppet got the fortune, though, so check that out via the website cognation.net. Today, much more stuff going on. <laughs> Victor Lustig, hailed from Austria, was a masterful con artist known for orchestrating scams across Europe and the United States in the early 20th century. He's widely regarded as one of the most notorious con artists of his time and is infamous for being the man who sold the Eiffel Tower not once, but twice. In the 1920s, he learned that the Eiffel Tower, built in 1889 for the World's Fair, was never meant to stand for more than two decades. As a result, it required frequent and expensive repairs which allowed his story to seem legitimate. So he pretended to be a government official from Paris, met with a bunch of scrap metal merchants from all across the city and told them that the government intended to physically scrap the Eiffel Tower in order to save money. He went to considerable efforts to make his story believable, including forging paperwork from the French government with a special seal and documents holding meetings at a nearby luxury hotel. And he made it obvious to everyone who was interested that he would sell the Eiffel Tower to anyone willing to knock it down and discard all the metal. Andrew Poisson, a trader, even paid a bribe of roughly $70,000 in cash with over $1 million today to guarantee that he would be awarded the winning bid. It was only after he'd shelled out all the money that he realised he'd been duped and he felt so humiliated by the theft that he decided not to report it. The second attempt by Victor Lustig was to uh, fail. He returned to Paris and attempted to pull off the same trick once again the following year. It is speculated that the fraudster was ready to finalise a deal with a second victim when police caught wind of this and forced him to leave the country before he could collect payment. <laughs> what an audacious, audacious con man. Well, that's about it, Stuff fans. We'll have more for you at another time. Thank you. Bye-bye. This is the Cocktail Nation.
Hey, it's Mike from Mr. Moe and the Tiki Heads, and we play something from my latest album, Surfotica, here on Cocktail Nation.
Cocktonation Martini Kings and Taboo. Make sure you check out last week's show, the interview that I did with Tony Marsico from the Martini Kings about his new book. Also by Mr. Moai and the Tiki Heads and the Tiki Man Cometh. And Buscelli Wallab Jazz Orchestra with Wolverine Blues starting us off there. World of Swing Gig Guide on the go. Official website, cocktonation.net, if you'd like to see what's going on around the globe. March 7, Marty Lush at the Cascade Lounge in Palm Springs. And May 17, Alika Lyman Group playing at Tiki Caliente. Do clothes in China say made around the corner? Very deep. Cocktail Nation. Another track from my album Lemon Twist, now playing on Cocktail Nation.
to accept I'm no ordinary girl And I'll never fit In your perfect little world Don't take it lightly Cause baby I'm not bluffing To get what I want I'll stop at nothing Having it all Having it all Never stop me from having it all Having it all Having it all You'll never stop me My reasons are simple So don't ask me why I'll never forget you Good Nation, Linda Carone and having it all not a bad way to be take it all too Linda next week on the show Jason Whiten from Spy Vibe back for 2024 and I'm going to leave you with Rose Sinclair and Misty stay hip Thank you.